because, you know, you work so hard and you volunteer and your eyes are set on the prize of being a child life specialist. And you get to do that for about two years. And then this kind of hits you out of nowhere and you're not expecting it. So it's kind of a, what do I do next? Where do I go from here? Welcome to the Child Life Wildlife Podcast, a platform dedicated to sharing the honest ins and outs and vulnerable truths about the child life profession with your host, Jessica Lewin. Come and gain tangible next steps and confidence as you learn how to use your child life skills, protect your mental health, and glean inspiration, hope, and ideas from fellow certified child life specialists, students, and professionals. And now, here's your host, Jessica Lewin. Hello, and welcome to the Child Life Wildlife Podcast. Today, I am talking with Jess Minnick a little bit about her experience last year when she was suddenly let go from her job um, because of COVID and budget cuts and kind of all of the imposter syndrome, mental health, um, navigating that situation, as well as touching on the fact that she worked in an ENT clinic, which I just think is personally interesting. Um, it's something that I didn't have a lot of experience with prior to, um, you know, practicum internship, starting my job. So I think she just has some good information to share with us today. And I'm excited for you to hear a little bit about her journey. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Jess Minnick about navigating a COVID related job loss as it relates to the child life profession. Hi, Jess. Thank you so much for being on the Child Life Wildlife Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited for us to talk a little bit about your journey through specifically COVID. Um, Unfortunately, I thought when we would be recording this, COVID would be like a thing of the past, but here we are still in the (laughs) midst of it. But um, I think your story is really interesting, and I'm curious to see if there are other child life specialists or other professionals that can relate to that. In the meantime, though, could you tell me and my listeners a little bit about you? Yeah. So um, I live in Des Moines, Iowa. I've lived here my whole life. (laughs) Um, I am a mom to a little girl. She's 15 months old. Um, I love to read. I'm a Leo, although I don't really know what that means. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Awesome. Where did you get your start with um, being a child life specialist? You had a really unique role that I would love for you to talk a little bit more about with working in an outpatient setting um, that isn't like your typical like surgery, ER, oncology, like a lot of people see. So if you could touch yeah. a little bit on that. So that kind of goes back to when I was in my undergrad. Mm -hmm. Um, I decided I was an elementary education major and I was volunteering at the time um, at the hospital that's near me. Mm -hmm. And that's when I learned about the role of child life. And I was like, I think this is what I want to do. So I changed my major and I started reaching out to a bunch of people um, to figure out like more about the role. How do you get into that? What degree do you need to have? Um, and that is when I met Courtney. Courtney was the first child life specialist that Iowa ENT center had. And I was able to do some observation with her throughout my undergrad. Then through grad school, we kind of stayed in touch. And it just so happened that as I was finishing up my internship, they were going to be hiring for a part-time child life specialist Mm -hmm. in the clinic, um, to help cover, cover some of her, um, hours that she would be gone. So, 
that is how I came to be an outpatient child life specialist. Um, Tell me a little bit about um, like what made you want to kind of go the outpatient route? Because is your outpatient connected to the hospital or is it like a standalone? It, so Iowa ENT Center is a private practice. Okay. Um, it is a owned by three doctors. There are, I believe, six doctors that operate within the facility. Uh-huh. Um, they have surgical privileges at the local hospitals. Um, I never followed them to the hospital, so mm-hmm. I would work with their patients at the clinic, but then also go with them to the outpatient surgery centers that they would operate in oh, within okay. the local area. Did the um, did the hospital that those doctors were connected to, did that hospital have child life? Yes. It did. Yes. Were mm-hmm. you like associated with them at all or were you just kind of like a one person or two person program? Two person program at the time. Um, we would sometimes collaborate with the other child life programs um, if I knew um, a patient was going to have a surgery where they'd be admitted. And okay. I knew that they were feeling kind of anxious. I'd have them sign a release of information, would reach out to, um, their child life department and just kind of give them a heads up of like, Hey, this patient's going to be here on this day. Yeah. These are the questions that they've been having and kind of what we've talked about. And that was always fun to kind of get to collaborate and work with them as well. Yeah. Okay. So walk me through a little bit about what your role was at the ENT clinic. Um, kind of like the typical day in your life there? Yeah. So a day in the clinic, I would come, I'd get there. Patients would start coming in around seven. The kids would start coming in a little bit later than seven. (laughs) So I had some time to kind of look at the schedule, see what, who was coming in, what procedures were going to be happening. Um, most of the time it's just your typical ENT exam. They're coming in for tubes, follow up for tonsils. Um, but there are some times where there'll be a foreign body removals. Um, so like a, beads stuck in the ear or allergy testing. Um, we also have audiology that was there. I'd help with some of the audio testing as well as, um, any sort of imaging needed for our speech pathologists, um, including nasopharyngoscopies, which is where they stick the small camera, the spaghetti camera, as we call (laughs) it up through the nose. And it kind of goes over the tonsils, over the tongue and looks down into the larynx and the voice box. That is very cool. Yeah, I didn't. I did never experience that in the inpatient world. Yeah, it was very new for me, mm-hmm. um, and it quickly became. I mean, we would do multiple a day, so it yeah. kind of became a focus for us really, really quickly. Um, and yeah, so I'd kind of just get a hold of what the day was going to look like, um, see if there was any like long time patients that were going to be coming in. Um, and then just kind of go about my day. And that would be checking in with the nurses, checking in with Dr. Young, um, mm-hmm. who is the pediatric, um, otolaryngol- or, oh my gosh, pediatric doctor. We're just going to call him doctor. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot uh, of, a lot of big words in the ENT yes. clinic world. <laughs> yes. He is our pediatric doctor that I worked primarily with. Mm-hmm. Um, and just kind of go about our day seeing the patients and, the nice thing about the ENT center is there are some times where I would have to be pulled in a couple different directions, mm-hmm. but following one doctor, I was able to see a large majority of the patients and really be able to um, meet with everybody that I wanted to get to throughout the day. That's awesome. 
Yeah. So let's take us back to like March 2020 when COVID hits. What exactly happened for your position? Kind of walk us through how things changed for the outpatient clinic and what that looked like. So the first thing that I noticed that was a huge change was the materials that I was allowed to use. Mm-hmm. I used, we have stress balls in every room. We had bubbles in every room. Uh, we had pinwheels in every room and those things went away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the stress balls, we were still able to keep those because those you can clean them easily. Mm-hmm. We just weren't allowed to keep them in the patient rooms anymore. Um, I had to carry them with me mm-hmm. as well as we had to go through with um, Dr. Young and kind of look at all of the toys and what's easy to clean thoroughly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So anything that I had to soak or, you know, like Legos, things like that had to be put up. Mm-hmm. And I really had to focus on like hard plastic, not a lot of grooves, cars, you know, things mm-hmm. like that, um, got put away in a tub <laughs> up in storage. And that was pretty shocking for all of us. All of us use those toys pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was kind of the biggest like, oh, things are going to change a little bit around here. Um, and then our patient load kind of dropped off mm-hmm. when the Iowa Department of Public Health um, canceled all elective surgeries. It really kind of emptied out our schedule. Mm-hmm. The surgeries that our doctors do are really important. You know, they increase quality of life for our patients, you know, just kind of help things along, but they're still considered elective mm-hmm. for the most part. So a good chunk of what we did every day was not allowed to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, also in the clinic, we would do uh, nasal cautery and like the imaging, like through the, sp- with the spaghetti camera, it all went through the nasal passages, which increased the risk. And we didn't have the PPE for it necessarily for everyone to be doing that multiple times a day. So really our patient load kind of dropped off. Um, And that was when I got pulled in to talk about furlough. Mm. Did you end up taking furlough? I did. So myself, the audiologist and the speech pathologist were um, furloughed Mm -hmm. for about a month from March to April. Um, when we came back, we came back with the SBA loan that was part of the COVID relief, um, funding Mm -hmm. that the government had implemented. Um, but our schedules really weren't up to where they normally were. Mm -hmm. So it was still a lot of organization. What projects can we find that we've been wanting to do for a long time? Uh, things like that. But then you didn't end up losing your job until. Correct. Yes. I was, we were back up and running and I was pregnant. So when Mm -hmm. I was furloughed, I was about seven months pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I came back, I was very pregnant. Mm -hmm. And, um, but by the time I had my baby, we were pretty much back to some semblance of normal. I was allowed to go back into the surgery uh, centers, um, back in the ORs with the doctor, mm-hmm. with the patients. Um, we were having more of those elective surgeries again, seeing patients for their, um, spaghetti camera, yeah. you know, all of, the, <laughs> all of the fun things that we get to do. We were seeing those again. I went on maternity leave for about three months, came back in August, um, worked like normal. And then in Iowa, we had an uptick in the fall. So we had a surge of cases, um, around Thanksgiving, we were Mm -hmm. 
there were some rumors going around the clinic of, are we going to be furloughed again? Mm. You know, is the, is the Iowa Department of Public Health going to cancel elective surgeries again? What is this going to look like? And we knew that kind of how we were operating wasn't um, sustainable necessarily. Yeah. Like we knew something was going to happen. Um, and when I got called in to the conference room that day, I was anticipating being told I'd be furloughed again. Mm -hmm. Um, but instead was told that they would have to dissolve my position. That is hard. (laughs) Yes, man. I think that, you know, a lot of child life specialists fear losing their jobs because I mean, the hospital, a lot of child life positions are not necessarily put into the budget. They're things that are donation based or through a foundation. And when the money runs out, the money runs out. And, um, so that can be really, really scary. Um, so then what, what happened next for you? Well, it was really difficult because Dr. Young and I are really like, we had a really good working relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, he is a huge advocate for child life. Mm -hmm. Um, when he brought Courtney on he kind of spearheaded that project, Um, he's spoken at the ACLP conference before. Mm. I mean, he's just very, very passionate about child life. And so it was really devastating for him and you could tell how hard it was Mm -hmm. for him to have to make that decision. But ultimately he's one doctor, you know, and they, they have to make decisions for their, um, for their business. So at that point I kind of went home and I let myself just have a couple of days to a week or two Mm -hmm. of just like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, cause you know, you work so hard and you volunteer and your mm-hmm. eyes are set on the prize of being a child life specialist and mm-hmm. you get to do that for about two years. And then this kind of hits you out of nowhere and mm-hmm. you're not expecting it. So it's kind of a, what do I do next? Where do I go from here? Yeah. So you give yourself those like two weeks, which is actually in my mind, that feels very short. <laughs> so like, I know. good for you. <laughs> I know it's one of those things where in the grand scheme of things, it's really not that long when you're grieving the loss of your dream job. Yeah. But, you know, I kind of was like, okay, well, I can't just sit around, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm like feeling like I'm, I'm just wallowing at this point. Like I need to find something I'm excited about again. Yeah. So yeah, I started looking locally. Um, We're not really in a position to move Mm -hmm. anywhere. So I knew that if I found something, it would most likely have to be child life adjacent. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was looking at local nonprofits that work with kids and families, supporting them in a variety of different situations. I was reaching out to places I'd done internships and volunteering with previously, just kind of trying to see anywhere that I could still utilize my degree and the things that I am passionate about and still feel like I'm like a contributing member to society. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It is hard to find jobs that are child life adjacent and still pay you well, which is so sad because I feel like as child life, we're constantly advocating for us to be paid more. And when you're looking for the child life adjacent jobs and going like, oh, wow, this is all somebody's willing me to willing to pay me for this similar job. It is pretty defeating. So where did you kind of land in that beginning time, you know, 
There were a lot of moments, if I'm being honest, where I would feel a little helpless Mm -hmm. because I would find a job and I'd be reading about it. And I'm like, this sounds great. Mm -hmm. I really like this. Mm -hmm. And then there would be, you need a social work degree or you need a counseling license. Yes. Like, like I have all this schooling, but Mm -hmm. just not the specific requirements that they're looking for. So then I started turning my sights to something that would be more temporary. Mm -hmm. Like what can I do if I can't find something I love that's going to be a long-term place for me? What can I do for now Mm -hmm. that is fulfilling, that I enjoy doing? Um, And I kind of landed on subbing. So we live kind of in the middle of five different districts Mm -hmm. (laughs) here in Des Moines. So I knew that I would have lots of options to pick from. Um, and so I took my classes for, I just had to take like a one week class for subbing, Mm -hmm. got my, um, authorization and was able to start subbing. And I did that for about three months until I found my current position. Okay. Nice. How did the, did you struggle with any kind of like imposter syndrome during this time? Yes, I did. Um, for a lot, for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everyone kind of struggles with imposter syndrome. Of course. Yeah. Especially in the child life world, you know, you have to, you will kind of work your way up. You start as volunteer and mm-hmm. then practicum student and then internship student. And then you're finally child life specialist. And then when that kind of suddenly gets taken from you, the things that you've been secretly telling yourself this whole time Mm -hmm. feel like they're true. Mm -hmm. They're not, but they feel like they're true. Mm -hmm. And so then you're like, well, did I just waste the last five years of my life? Um, The answer is no, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it feels that way. And um, so I struggled with that a lot. I struggled with um, most of the people that I was working with as substitutes, they were either on their way to becoming a teacher Mm -hmm. or they were just like waiting for an opening. And so I felt like kind of a kinship with them, but then I was still kind of on the outside. Yeah. Like those. So I just didn't really feel like I fit anywhere necessarily. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of that, a lot of like really having to adjust how I was talking to myself throughout Mm -hmm. that whole process. So that kind of leads me into really beautifully (laughs) into the next question I have of, you know, I'm sure with the imposter syndrome and suddenly losing the job and having all of these emotions mentally, that was extremely hard. So what did you do for yourself in order to stay sane, find some control? I went back to therapy. (laughs) Yes. Good for you. (laughs) I have gone to therapy on and off pretty Mm -hmm. much my whole life. And Mm -hmm. it was just this moment of like, you know what, I have to do something for myself. And the surface level self-care of like taking a bubble bath and Mm -hmm. like doing your nails and focusing on your skincare is great, (laughs) but it only goes so far. Yes. And when I realized that wasn't really helping me, I was like, okay, it's time to like get get to work Mm -hmm. and put in the energy that I need to um, to make sure that I'm giving my best because I, you know, I have a family, I have a daughter, I have mm-hmm. like jobs that I am looking at, you know, like applying for. And if I'm not in the right mind space, I am not going to be putting my best self out there. Right. Right. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> I love therapy. Huge I love therapy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so 
tell us and brag to us a little bit about where you are now. I am a child life specialist at Mercy One Children's Hospital, um, also in Des Moines. The fun thing about working at Mercy is that I actually did my practicum there back in 2015. So I'm working with two of the people that I was with back then. Mm. Um, A very small department. It used to be bigger through budget cuts and COVID and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, They were down to two people Mm -hmm. and then hired me part time. So it's just the three of us and we kind of work overlapping and we kind of hop around all over, um, all over the hospital in radiology, in the ER, in endoscopy, up on the floor. Um, And then we also get calls to the adult floors too to help with any sort of like um, bereavement support for children of adult patients, siblings of adult patients, et cetera. Has that been a hard adjustment at all for you going from like strictly outpatient to going back to kind of the inpatient and outpatient world? It has a little bit, mostly because things like bereavement, the last Mm -hmm. time I did them was in my internship. Um, and you have a lot of support when you're doing that as an intern. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are times when I get a call and I'm the only one there, or there's like one other person and they're in an MRI. And so you just never know what's going to happen. Um, but it's been a good adjustment. I would say there's definitely a learning curve, but it's been really challenging in good ways. And I'm finding that I really love the pace of it. I love hopping around all over the place and every day looks a little bit different. And that's been really enjoyable. That is awesome. Well, I'm glad that your whole big story had like a nice happy ending. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I feel like this conversation would have been so sad and hard if it was still just like, and you don't have anything new yet. (laughs) So good. It's it's difficult. I think in the field of child life and fields adjacent to Mm -hmm. child life, um, there's always that worry of like, am I secure in my, in my role? Mm -hmm. Um, because unfortunately, you know, I'm only 27 and this is the second time that my position was dissolved. Um, previously it was for, and it was in a totally different position before I started grad school. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it happens and it's a constant fear. Unfortunately it's happened twice and you kind of just have to make the lemonade out of the lemons and figure out what you're going to (laughs) do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, to close things off, I have three questions that I ask everybody. So my first question for you is if someone's listening today and they're really resonating with what you're saying about finding yourself in an unexpected situation, what piece of advice would you give to that person? I would say find a way to continue putting your like favorite parts about yourself out there. Mm. So even if it's not going to be like the ideal job or the job you thought that you were going to be in, um, if you can find little ways to still continue the important things, Mm -hmm. um, caring for people, helping children regulate their emotions, whatever it is about the role or yourself or your skills or your talents that you like most find Mm -hmm. ways to really throw yourself into those. And no matter where you're at, you'll still find good in it. That is such good advice. So I have a lot of students that follow along and listen to this podcast. So what's one thing that you'd say to them as a tip for moving through this profession? I would say be flexible, be ready for anything. It might not always look like how you anticipate it. Um, but you will learn something from every situation. Mm -hmm. Um, and just try to make the most of that. Yeah. 
And then my last question is a weird one. So if child life is a wild life, what has been the wildest part of your experience so far? I would say the skills that we coach our patients through Mm -hmm. that we talk to them about Mm -hmm. um, having to use them myself, you know, finding times where I'm like, okay, you need some grounding. You need some like it's (laughs) kind of child lifing myself has been the craziest part of this whole thing for me. Yeah. No, I definitely see that. I say that a lot. Or I like child life my husband. (laughs) It's like, who knew? Who knew we'd be doing this? But skills translate everywhere. And I think it's it's helpful. It is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jess, for coming on the podcast. It was really great hearing your story and the positive ending that we got to hear at the end. Yes. Thank you for having me.